First one is, was the Pentateuch written during the Babylonian exile? Uh, The Pentateuch is just another word for the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if you were here last night, you'll know that I forgot what those five words are, so I practiced them this morning. So there you go. Uh, Credibility is very important in these things. To to be able to name the Pentateuch does help. Uh, The Babylonian exile um, was much, much after the time of the events of the books of those first five um, events, the, the events of the first five books. And in them, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that Moses wrote them, and Jesus talked about them as the books of Moses. So I take it that they were written by Moses, not during the Babylonian exile, although it does seem that there are a few little editorial tweaks to them that would say, kind of like, in these events, which happened back in the time of... So they might have had a little bit of editorial work on them, but we believe that they were written by Moses during the uh, the time when the events happened and uh, things that he wasn't around for, like creation and so forth. He was uh, revealed those by God and wrote them down. Question two, another tricky question. Do you think that these two bits of the Bible, John 7, 53, 8 to 11, and Mark 16, 9 to 20, are part of the Bible? Hmm, well, they're in the Bible, so... How could they not be in the Bible? Well, let me tell you why some might say that they're not supposed to be there. Uh, the events are that John 7:53 to 8:11. That's where the woman from adult who committed adultery was about to be stoned to death, and Jesus stepped in and said, "Let you who have no sin cast the first stone." And then they all nicked off, and Jesus then said to the woman, "Go and sin no more." Is that actually to be treated as part of the Bible or not? And what about the so-called longer ending of Mark's Gospel from verses 9 to 20. The verse 8 of Mark's Gospel, of chapter 16, ends with all the women running away from the tomb completely confused, and it stops there. And then you, you have a look, and, and then after that, there's a bit where Jesus appears, and then there's some weird stuff about being able to drink poison and get stung by snakes and got, not getting harmed. Uh, is that part of the Bible? Well, My natural response is to say, well, everything's part of the Bible, except when you look in our English translations, often there's a little heading or a footnote about those particular passages. And they say, the oldest manuscripts don't contain those passages. So what are we to do with them then? Well, you see, we don't have just one big thing in the Greek and the Hebrew that's been translated into English. There are lots of original documents of the Bible. And Archaeologists keep finding them and digging them up. And and you might have heard the the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. There's all these sorts of different collections of bits of the Bibles that that hang around. The amazing thing is that they time and time again show how historically reliable the whole transmission of the Bible is, unlike pretty much any other book that's around. But as they've dug up stuff, they've said, hang on, the really, really old versions don't have this funny ending of Mark's Gospel. So it seems in a few little spots that someone may well have said, look, we don't like the abrupt ending. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of smooth it off with some details from other bits of the Bible. And so I think that the bit at the end of Mark from verses 9 to 20 is not original. And so when I preach through the whole of Mark's gospel, I usually stop at the end of verse 8. What about this bit in the middle with John's gospel? Well, there's also some discussion about whether or not it appears in the most reliable texts or not. But I... Uh, As I've done further research about this, it seems likely or quite probable that the event did happen, um, 
And I trust smart people who have written commentaries and so forth on it that it seems that it was very likely that it was in fact part of the history of what Jesus did that's recorded there for us, even though there is, it's a little bit sketchy in terms of its reliability as a manuscript. Now, don't think, oh, my goodness, does that mean we can't trust the Bible? There's only just a couple of little bits, and this person's carefully done their homework in this question and has given us the two crackers out of the New Testament, and here they both are, and they're the only real ones where we go, oh, scratch our heads, and so I think one's in and one's not. So there you go. If you're confused about that, send me over a coffee or ask another question. See, we we answer all the tough questions here, and here's a real tough one. Uh, Buckle up on this one. Doesn't 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 describe the pre-tribulation rapture? We we had a a visiting preacher a couple of weeks ago who who, uh, very kindly raised a a very difficult topic about what happens at the end of time when Jesus returns, and uh, I was very thankful for him coming along and speaking about this. Those verses say... For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll be with the Lord forever. So it's talking about the end of time when Jesus returns. And they're saying, does this big nerdy thing, the pre-tribulation rapture, is that what it's describing? Well, it depends a little bit about your view of what happens when Jesus comes back. Uh, There are lots of different views about this in terms of the church. One view is that when he comes back, it's then going to usher in a 1,000-year period called the Millennium. And there's all sorts of stuff to do with that. There's going to be the tribulation and all this sort of stuff. Uh, There's another view that says that when Jesus comes back, then he'll judge the living and the dead. Those who are friends with Jesus now and are friends with Jesus on the day of judgment will be with him in heaven. And those who are enemies with Jesus now and enemies with Jesus on the day of judgment will go to hell. And that's the end of the story. So... Different Christians believe different things about that. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter a whole lot. you just got to make sure you're friends with Jesus before he comes back. And the, is it the pre-tribulation rapture or not? Well, it depends. Uh, some th- millions of Christians think that this millennium thing's a thing. Uh, millions of Christians don't. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like one of us is right, one of us is wrong, and we'll wait and see how it all pans out in the end. Question four, the slightly shorter questions than the last three and slightly less technical. Why do we pray so hard for people we love to become believers if they haven't been chosen by God? Well, this comes from the bit of the Bible I preached on last week, Acts 13. In verse 48 of that, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked God for his message, and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. I love this verse because in it we get the clear message that God has chosen some to be his followers. And at the same time, we see that those people have earnestly and genuinely made a choice to believe, all within a couple of words of each other. And the Bible holds them together, doesn't get stressed about the fact that we sort of think, how does that work? It just says it's a reality. And given that's a reality, this question asks, why do we pray for people we love to become believers if they haven't been chosen by God? The answer is we don't know who has and who hasn't. I've got no idea who's chosen or not chosen by God. So I just tell everyone about Jesus. And anybody who might be around and I think, oh, do they look like a chosen type person? I don't know. What Do chosen people wear red T-shirts or blue? I don't know. Not at all. We just don't know. And so we tell everybody, we pray for them and we pray hard because we want all people to be believers, believers of Jesus. 
Question two related to this is what should be our response to knowing that there are many who have not been chosen and we have? Well, there's a, there are three chapters in the Bible right next to each other in the book of Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11. And it's all about how the Apostle Paul, who grew up as a Jew, recognises that there's a whole bunch of Jews who haven't come to follow Jesus as they should have. And we see his emotions. Uh, he, he says at one point, his heart is bi- filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. And then he goes on to say, it's God who decides to show mercy. And then after that he says, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. It, it's kind of like he's got three phases of grief sort of there. He, he, grief at their faithlessness, then confidence in God's justice, and then a wonder at God's mercy. And I think those three things are sort of what we should feel as we recognise that there are many who don't know the Lord Jesus, but that we do. If you, have, if you are friends with Jesus, then you can have that complete confidence. Finally, how do we have hope for someone's death if they don't believe in Christ? If someone dies as an enemy of Jesus, then when they stand before Jesus, they will be judged. If someone is... Uh, someone dies um, as, as an enemy of Jesus, they will go to hell. And if someone dies as a friend of Jesus, they will go to heaven. The Bible's so clear about this, it's not funny. When we come together and we say, what does it mean for, for a person who's, who, who's died? Are they in heaven or not? Uh, then my, new, my usual response is, God is rich in mercy. And we can't know what has happened in the last moments of a person's life and what's personally happened between them and God. And in fact, there are stories where people will, in the, in the dying hours or moments of their life, say, listen, I really now feel that I need to come back to Jesus. And they do, which is wonderful news. We can't know for certain. But what I would say is that if you know someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, or if you yourself are not yet a follower of Jesus, there is still time to come back to him and repent. And so please do that so you can have that certainty for your own eternity.